Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You're listening to Passions and Prologues, a literary podcast where each week I interview an author about a thing they love and how it inspires their work. I'm your host, Adam Sokol, and today's guest is Josh Womack, a local for me here in Cleveland, Ohio. Josh has a book that came out earlier this year called You're Not That Funny, Stories from Cleveland Stand-Up. Josh, for a while, was a stand-up comedian here in Cleveland, Ohio, and wrote all about what that experience was. It was really, really fun to get to talk to him about this for multiple reasons. One, uh, we have a mutual friend that connected us. And as anyone who's been listening to this podcast for a little while knows, I am a a big stand-up comedy nerd. So it was great to kind of pick his brain on joke construction, ideas, where things came from, and and just his overall experiences. Uh, Josh is also a copywriter by trade. So that's something that, A, I obviously am very much a part of and in that world, both as an aspiring writer and someone who creates content for a living as well. So just really fun to have a kind of inside baseball discussion about how we focus on what content is going to catch people's attention, how we build things out in a way that is kind of eye-catching. And yeah, just a really great discussion with someone who uh, is very, very local to me. It was a really wonderful time. I had a great time getting to know Josh, and I think you will as well. Uh, I want to give you a book recommendation that is on theme with this discussion, and I'm going to go with Sick in the Head, Conversations About Life and Comedy by Judd Apatow. Uh, Judd Apatow is obviously known the world over for his wildly successful movies, uh, but Sick in the Head is a series of interviews that he did with the funniest people he knows, uh, comedians, actors, movie writers, and all sorts of different celebrities that you will definitely have heard of. Uh, Judd also is a stand-up comedian now and again, Um, but these discussions are really, really interesting. The conversations are fascinating. And again, it's a really interesting breakdown of the construction of comedy and why things are funny and so much more. So that's Sick in the Head by Judd Apatow. And again, uh, Josh's book is You're Not That Funny, stories from Cleveland stand-up that you should check out as well. I'll put a link in the bio there. Okay. If you ever want to get a hold of me, you can always find me on TikTok and Instagram at Passions and Prologues. You can also find me by shooting me an email at passionsandprologues at gmail.com. I love hearing from everybody over there as well. That is all the housekeeping. I am going to gracefully transition into my conversation with Josh Womack, author of You're Not That Funny on Passions and Prologues. Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, 
digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. Okay, Josh, normally I start every episode by saying, what is something you're super passionate about that we're going to discuss today? But right before we started recording, I kind of decided for you because it's something I'm also super passionate about. You are a stand-up comedian. And so I want to I wanna ask kind of how did you get into the stand-up comedy world? Like what was your first introduction to stand-up comedy? Or like the larger question, why do you love stand-up comedy so much? Yeah, you know, stand-up was one of those things where I think on most people's you know, mind, it's really one of those kind of bucket list items where, you know, they, you know, they've maybe they've made their friends and family laugh or, you know, maybe they've been at a party and they've cracked a few jokes and, you know, it got a good response. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's just a matter of, do you want to take that next step to actually do an open mic or do you want to, you know, try to develop, you know, two or three minutes of, you know, of stage time. Mm-hmm. And really it started for me with, I just kind of had the notion in my head. It was something I always wanted to try. And um, me and a buddy from high school just started emailing joke premises to each other. Yeah. Um, and it was basically like um, along the lines of the Seinfeld book. Uh, Seinfeld wrote a book called Is This Anything? Mm-hmm. And, and the book is just like one-off sentences of just scribbles from his notebooks to where, you know, it's like, is this anything? And it'll just be like a statement. Um, so really like me and my buddy, we started kind of just emailing each other joke premises and then, um, yeah, I kind of got into stand up the way a lot of Northeast Ohio comedians get into stand up through, um, a guy named Dave Schwenson mm-hmm. teaches a stand up comedy workshop. Um, so Dave has probably, he's probably had close to a thousand people come through his workshop. He's been doing it for, I think 20 or 30 years now. And, um, with the workshop, it's funny, like you, you meet at the Cleveland improv and you get up in front of seven or eight of your classmates and you try to do stand up and it's extremely nerve wracking because first of all, trying to do stand up in front of seven or eight people is not ideal. <laughs> and then when you're just starting out, nobody's really good, you know? Mm-hmm. So you go up there, you try to fumble your way through a set. Um, and then Dave would kind of give you some instructions on not really the writing aspect, but if your material was universal enough. You know, Mm. if it was something that like every audience could get, were you talking about, you know, relationships and were you talking about getting older? Um, And then what we ended up doing was we had a, uh, a quote unquote graduation performance at the Cleveland Improv where you invite your friends and family on like a Wednesday night, you get up there for three minutes, you do your stuff and then away you go. So for some people, you know, that, that improv graduation showcase is just kind of like, a checkbox. Mm-hmm. Like I always want to do stand up. I did it. I can kind of move on with, you know, my life. And then for other people, it's the start to doing stand up for a very long time. And I, I did stand up for, you know, a number of years. I, I don't really do it much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I do, I do a lot of writing. Um, I don't get up on stage really that often, but um, no, I think stand up for me, it really gave me kind of a launching pad mm-hmm. into what I do now as a copywriter to what I do now as an author, it got me, it got me writing consistently. So I think that was, um, I don't know, 
to me, like all the good stuff that I have in life, none of it would have been possible without stand-up. Yeah. I, so I'm, I'm curious for you. Like I have, I assume it's the same for you. I have always loved stand-up comedy like since I was a little kid and it was, you know, I, a lot harder to find stand-up. You would like be one of those things where I'd be just like watching Comedy Central at like 1.30 in the morning waiting for like a, like a, one of those uh, premium blends or whatever they were called. <laughs> um, but like for you, what initially attracted you? Like, was it something that you would watch a ton as a kid or was it something that just like kind of came about, like you said, when you started sort of chatting with your friend back and forth about premises and stuff? Was it something you watched as a kid as well? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think I I kind of leaned a little more towards sketch comedy, you know, watching SNL and Mad TV mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, and I remember I would record all the old SNLs, you know, when, when you still use VHSs to record stuff, obviously. But um, yeah, I would record Mad TV and SNL and I would watch them throughout the week, you know, and I would, I would rewatch my favorite skits. And um, so I would, yeah, I would just keep watching those. And then with stand-up, I was always just kind of fascinated by guys like, um, like Dennis Miller. Like I just thought his, I thought his brain just worked in such a unique way. He just had such a rich vocabulary and that kind of got me to thinking like, all right, like, do I have, you know, do I have enough things to talk about? Like, Mm -hmm. do I have, do I have a unique enough perspective to actually kind of give this a go? And it's funny when you ask, like, when you ask comedians, about the funniest people they know, they're really never the funniest people that they know. The funniest people they know is a guy around the block that they grew up with, Mm -hmm. but they're the ones that actually just gave it a go. So, you know, my buddy that I was actually emailing the joke premises with, in my opinion, he's way funnier than I am. He's way more witty. He's way more conversational. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, I just happened to, to try it. And that was the only difference. Yeah. I, I was laughing. We were talking about Saturday Night Live because I, because I, I feel like everyone in the world can age themselves by saying like their favorite, their favorite cast is because it's always when you're like 12 to 14 years old, years old. And I remember my best friend and I, we had the, um, the Chris Farley and the Will Ferrell best ofs, like back when they used to make yep, like best of VHSs. Of course. We, we wore those things out. Like I, I can still remember like the, Chris Farley commercial. Like, did you know you're drinking Folgers like crystals and like, there's all these, things and I, I know what you mean like I would watch those religiously I still do lines from those various things like today and but you're right like to be a stand-up comedian I feel like a lot of it is a taking that first step and being like all right I'm gonna get up here and I'm gonna make a floor myself for a long time before I, I get good at it but like I guess something I'm really fascinated in that you talked about like a lot of people's funniest person they know isn't always it usually isn't a stand-up comedian it's like what do you think the difference is between being funny with a group of people and being funny on stage in front of usually a lot of strangers? Yeah, I think it goes back to, you know, do you have a story to tell that's universal enough for people to understand? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because not everything can really be inside baseball or, or you'll kind of lose the crowd that way. Um, you know, you think about like Ray Romano, you know, his stuff is about marriage and kind of getting older and his parents and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, yeah, and I think... I just think there's a big difference of actually kind of riffing if you're at a party or, you know, if you're with your buddies tailgating and you crack a funny joke, mm-hmm. I think there's a fine line between doing that and then actually sitting down to write a stand-up set. 
So to actually sit down and to kind of weave a story together and then to tell a story with surprise endings. And that's kind of, in my opinion, what stand-up is. It's a, it's a bunch of short stories with surprise endings. So can you kind of take the audience one way and kind of zig when, you know, they think you're going to zag? Um, yeah. So for me, it comes down to the writing aspect of it. Mm -hmm. um, actually putting pen to paper and actually, you know, trying to, trying to streamline a set so it makes sense for a group of strangers that you have never met before. And there's a good chance that you're never really going to run into again. Um, you know, because with your friends and family, you know, there's, they kind of have like, you kind of have equity with them. Mm. Like they know your personality. They kind of know your, you know, what makes you tick and your nuances with a standup crowd. It's probably, you know, the first time they're seeing you and, you know, they're not related to you and they didn't grow up in the same place that you grew up, you know, with. Um, mm. So you kind of have to make it appeal to the masses so to speak. Yeah. I, I love where you're talking about like zigging when, when people are expecting you to zag, but I, I think of, I, I think of all the different types of comedians that I love and they're all very different from one another. Like I got a chance before he passed away to see Mitch Hedberg with my brother. And like for people who are not, who are not familiar, first off, when you're finished listening to this, go look up Mitch Hedberg jokes because they're so absurd and short. Like he'll just write a line. Like um, I think Pringle's original idea was to make tennis balls. And like, it's perfect. Just, it's perfect. It's like a perfect line. There's no yeah. ways to fit. But then I also think there's something so unique about um, like there's this comedian, um, Nate Bargatze, who's very, very popular. And he's very clean. He doesn't swear. He doesn't like tell like blue jokes, but he's from a very small place, I think in Tennessee. And like, he'll talk a lot about that in his sets. And I'm always impressed that he like comedians who can find a way to make people understand where he's coming from, who have no like you and I could spend an hour. In fact, we were before we started recording, we were talking about Cleveland things and the Browns and our our football team. Um, we could do that, and it would just be for you and I. But like yeah. I do, always think it's really impressive. Like you said, to make people be able to relate to stories about where you're from that they might not be able to understand uh, other otherwise. So like for you, did you kind of try to keep your comedy? about Northeast Ohio, about Cleveland specific, or like where, what paths were you taking as a comedian? Yeah. You know, now that I look back on it, I think in hindsight, it's always 2020, but I think I, I definitely leaned on the crutch of like local jokes, like when I was starting out. And I think, mm -hmm. I think some of us do that cause we're just, we're just looking for laughs and we're just looking for material. Mm -hmm. um, I would say, and it's funny, like, you know, I'm, I'm 40 now and you know, you look back and that was like the one thing that I wish I would have done better was I wish I would have written for like a larger audience. Cause mm -hmm. you know, obviously if I make these jokes in a Cleveland setting, Cleveland people will get them and it's great. But you know, if you drive an hour away somewhere or if you drive to Pittsburgh or something like those, you can't do those jokes, you know? Mm -hmm. So you're kind of eliminating a good portion of your set. Um, but I think, you know, the local jokes kind of have their, their time and place, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I think it's a matter of not relying on them too heavily, but kind of like sprinkling them in throughout. Yeah. It's also like an ability, like you said, if you were going to perform outside of Cleveland, <laughs> like the moment you say you're from Cleveland, I feel like our city still has a very, like people have a negative 
connotation of Cleveland. Un, like it no longer deserves it. It's a much, much more wonderful place to live than it used to be even 10 years ago. But like, I do think if you make those jokes about Cleveland to other places, it's like you're taking the power back. Like you can't make fun of me. I'm making fun of me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Totally. Yeah. So you mentioned before we started recording how like stand-up comedy has really helped with your career now as, as a writer and a copywriter. And I'm curious kind of like what the trans translation is for writing on stage to, you know, writing for brands or writing a book. Like, and how did you take the skills and, and things you learned on stage and, and transitioned it over? Yeah. So I think I'll start with just kind of copywriting, you know, in general, I think with copywriting, when, you know, when copywriters get hired, most creative directors kind of look for, they look for your way of thinking. They kind of want to see how your brain operates a little bit. So usually what you do, you'll do is you'll have, you know, a um, kind of a digital portfolio, so to speak. You'll have a website with maybe some, some print ads that you worked on, or maybe some social media ads and things like that. So, you know, I read a book, um, a while ago, it's called Copywriting Is. It's by a copywriter across the pond named Andrew Bolton. And he said, um, copywriting is a wink amongst screams, which I thought was really good. So it's almost like a, uh, just like a slight nod. Like, it's almost like you're letting the consumer in on the joke a little bit. Um, especially if you have, you know, if you can play with like a funny brand, um, mm -hmm. you're kind of like, you're kind of letting the consumer, the customer know it's kind of like, okay, not to take everything, you know, kind of so seriously. Obviously, you want to sell the product, but at the same time, you want to give your brand a little bit of personality. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think it's actually a reason why a lot of comedians kind of fall into copywriting a little bit, mm. um, just because they are looking at the world like kind of through, you know, a little bit of a different lens. They're kind of looking at it as a way of like, okay, there's something inherently funny here. I just got to figure out what it is. Yeah. I, as a, like for people who've been listening for a while, they know I'm a marketer. I work for a tech company. I do marketing. And like, before we started recording, I was working on producing what will be our new monthly newsletter. And like, I know exactly what you mean. Cause it's every single one of us gets, you know, 150 emails a day to whatever it is. Like we all get so many emails. So it's like, how can I write something or how can I create a, like you said, a social media ad where people are scrolling through the Instagram or LinkedIn or wherever they are. And like, how can I get away from them to pause for two seconds to actually look at this? And, and I, I think you're, I, I love how you're, what you were saying about how comedians are probably better at that because like you, it's working on those like tight, you know, like what five words can I say to capture your attention? And like, you know, I, I guess, like, do you work? I tend to be an overwriter and then like pare down. Like how do you approach from a copywriting standpoint, like how do you approach creating the things that you are working on from, you know, brand to brand or, you know, when you're just trying to produce your work? Yeah, I think, you know, in the beginning, I think I probably wrote a little too much. I was like an over, you know, an overwriter, so to speak, like you, like mm -hmm. you were saying. Um, but it was funny, um, another copywriter kind of came aboard the agency and I was always really impressed with how she kind of kept her word counts low and she was just able to say the same thing I did, but she was always able to say it in like three or six less words, mm -hmm. you know, like she would add like an emoji or like she would just, she would be able to just say it so much more simpler. So I think over time 
I, I'm like very, I'm very cognizant of word counts now. Mm -hmm. Um, so like what I'll do is, you know, when I write an email or something, I'll kind of run it through like a character counter or a word counter. And if it's, if it's at a hundred words, I'll be like, all right, can I get this thing to like 85 or 90 words? Mm -hmm. You know, can I shorten it just a little bit? And then there's all these rules, you know, obviously with, you know, a billboard shouldn't be more than, you know, six words because you don't want people to get into car accidents while they're trying to read your billboard. Like, and you work in marketing, so you kind of hear all this stuff, I'm Mm -hmm. sure. Um, But yeah, I think over time, copywriting has definitely helped me kind of write a little tighter. And as it kind of like streamlines into, you know, writing books, Mm -hmm. like I'm very cognizant. I don't want to bore anybody. Um, So that's why like, even with my books, the chapters are really short. They're really tight. And, um, yeah. And, and at the same time, like, I don't know if I really have that much to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think my favorite thing about being in marketing and again, I, I work for a tech company. We, we sell sales tools. There's a ton of salespeople in our company and they're all wonderful, but like it's, it's, they laugh because I am the sole creator of content for our company, but even still with the amount of stuff I produce, like, I feel like most of my day is staring at the wall and being like, how can I make this 50 words, 22 words instead? Or like, how do I say this in a better way? Or how do I come up with a tagline for this campaign that is three words and is funny and is like, makes you stop. And it's like, I feel like so much of writing and I imagine this is probably true for writing for stand-up as well, but for like for writing novels or for like doing copywriting, like so much of our job is just like sitting there staring and being like, how can I do this thing in a more succinct way? Yeah, I totally agree. It's almost like if you write for an hour a day, you're spending those other 23 hours kind of sharpening the ax, mm-hmm. so to speak. And yeah. um, no, I am, I am totally with you on that because yeah, I'll, you know, what I'll do is I'll try to write. And it's funny, like I'll go off on a little bit of a tangent here, but I always laugh when I'm on like LinkedIn and I see people who are like, you know, I try to get in 10,000 steps and I try to write for four hours uninterrupted. And I'm like, who are you robots like that are writing? Like I got maybe 45 minutes like Mm -hmm. straight through and then I need a break. And after that initial 45 minutes, like I might be able to write for another 20, 25 minutes. And then it's Mm -hmm. just, for me, it's just diminishing returns. So like you said, um, you know, if I, if I can write an hour to 90 minutes a day, I, I usually feel like it's a pretty, pretty good day. Yeah, that is, I I do believe in like giving myself blocks, like about an hour, because if I see that I have a meeting coming up in like 20 minutes, I'm like, well, that's 20 minutes that I'm not, I'm just going to not do anything and not be productive. But like, but you're absolutely right. If I was, there's this like perfect zone, like you said, like 60 to 90 minutes for me too, where I'm like, if I schedule four hours to write something, I'm not going to do it. It's almost like I need that, like, like, what is it? Deadlines for actions. They always say, it's like, I need to know, like, okay, I have 90 minutes or I have 60 minutes, but it's, if I only have 20, forget about it. If I have four minutes or four hours, forget about it. It's, it's not going to happen for me. Um, but I, I'm curious. So for you as someone who writes as part of your job, and then, like you said, you're also an author and you have, you know, your, your latest book is out. You're not that funny. Like, do you find ways to separate the two or do you find like after a day, this is my problem is also an aspiring author is like, I write all day and then I get done writing and I'll go for a run and we'll eat dinner. And I'm like, okay, 
now I got to write more. It's uh, do you, are you, how do you kind of delineate between like work, work and like enjoyment writing? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, one of the things I do is I just try to get the book stuff done before the workday starts. Mm. And, and there's, and there's a ton of stories of people who've done it that way. Um, I think, I think John Grisham did that for a number of years, you know, um, before all his, I think he was a lawyer before he was a best-selling author. Mm-hmm. Um, but he would try to get in that writing before, you know, all the emails and all the meetings came and things like yeah. that. And honestly, like the goals that I strive for are really, really small. So, you know, Stephen King writes 2000 words a day. Yeah. So, so that's like elite level. That's mm-hmm. like Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, Steph Curry kind of all rolled into one. Mm-hmm. So I look at that number and I say 2000 words and I think to myself, I'm going to try to do five or 10% of that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to try to write a hundred, maybe 200 words a day, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's really not that much, yeah. but it's nice when you're working on a word doc and you look at that lower left-hand corner and you see that word count mm-hmm. and you see it start to increase. And once I kind of feel like that's in a good place, I can kind of shut that off. And then I can go on to, you know, obviously my copywriting work. And then mm-hmm. for like, the copywriting work, you know, say, say you're writing an email. Um, so maybe I'll write the subject lines and the headlines, but then I'll stop before I have to write the body copy of mm-hmm. the email. Like maybe I'll save the body copy for tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm a big, big fan of just slow and steady wins the race and just continually chipping away. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Um, so for your, your book, can you kind of give my listeners an introduction to you're not that funny and like why you wanted to write it? how it came to be and all that good stuff. Yeah. So it was funny. Um, when I was writing my first book, the first book is called, I'm not a copywriter. Um, but even when I was like halfway through writing my first book, I kind of knew this second book was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I just thought like, okay, I think, I think there's some decent stories here to tell. And then it was funny because, you know, when you're on Facebook, you always get those Facebook memories that pop yeah. up. Yeah. And most of them are mildly depressing because they'll remind you of like the stupidest posts that you wrote, like, you know, like something you thought was funny eight to 10 years ago, which is just almost cringe, you know, cringe worthy mm-hmm. today. But it was funny. Every other Facebook memory that I had was like a standup flyer of a show that I was trying to promote. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was always a flyer at like a bar show or, you know, a show over on the East side or, you know, at brother's lounge, you know, kind of on the Cleveland Lakewood border. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, I was like, this was such a huge, huge part of my life. Like, could I kind of string together enough stories here to make an actual book? Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew it wasn't going to be a long book um, because when I did stand up, it was really, I kind of concentrated on the years 2010 through 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were kind of like the thick of it when I was really, really into it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would say like those Facebook memories kind of thought, they kind of put like the seed in my head. Mm-hmm. You know, like, do I have something to say? Is there something here? And then, um, yeah, you, you kind of just go back in the memory bank and uh, you just try to think of stuff that, you know, fans of stand up would like and even non fans of stand up. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's kind of how it came together. Yeah. Do you find yourself getting that itch anymore? Like, oh, I kind of want to like get back at this. I want to do something that, you know, I want to go like, make myself uncomfortable for a little while. See if I see if I still enjoy the process. Like, do you find yourself still interested in, in getting up on stage? You know, not really. And I, and I think what the book helped me do is it kind of helped me almost tie a bow 
around stand-up. Mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of like a nice way to kind of say, okay, like I acknowledged that part of my life mm-hmm. and now I can, I can be proud of something physical, you know, that I created. Yeah. Um, but it, I think what's really nice is, you know, I transitioned from stand-up to copywriting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even though I wasn't on stage anymore, like I still got to flex creative muscles mm-hmm. and that's still what I get to do today, which I, which I really, really, you know, appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's still kind of like using the same kind of creativity and kind of like the same, you know, side of your brain, so to speak. So even though I'm not doing it on stage, like I'm still, I'm still kind of doing it in like a, uh, I guess you could say a more specific way now. Has having experience doing stand-up comedy changed the way that you watch and view stand-up comedy? Yeah, I think anyone who's done stand-up, you know, probably has some snobbish opinions, you know, when they see other stand-ups, um, you know, especially just from the joke writing process. Like sometimes you can see a joke and you can see the punchline coming from like a mile away. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I think, I think standups admire other standups when they write something that's like, Oh, I wish I would have thought of that. Or, mm-hmm. Oh, that's a joke that I wish I would have you know written. Um, yeah. so I think, you know, standups will always kind of have that, um, kind of that way about them. So yeah, that it definitely affects how you, how you watch stand up. Yeah. I, it's a, actually my, my boss, my VP of marketing, she and I joke that the reason we're good at marketing is because we hate marketing. And so like, it takes a lot to actually, <laughs> like we, it takes a lot for us to actually be like, Oh, that's a really good idea. How can we play off of that? Cause most of the marketing I see as a marketer, I'm like, that sucks so much. I knew where they were going with that. It's like, yeah, um, I know exactly. I feel like, I assume people who have the experience in stand-up comedy, like much tougher crowd, just like marketers and copywriters are much tougher, like to please with a, a line. Yeah. But when you do get one that works, we're the people who are like, Oh my God, well done. That's really, that's really good. Oh yeah. We're, you know, it's funny. You, you definitely, you give props where, you know, where it's due. And mm-hmm. uh, it's funny, like just, I guess, you know, from a marketing perspective, like it's funny now how like, you know, I'll pay attention to like radio ads, mm-hmm. like, you know what I mean? And I'll, I'll actually listen to them and I'll think like, all right, was this good? Was this bad? Like, you know, and you always ask yourself, could I have done better with it? So I totally get where you're coming from. Yeah. And it's, and then the other, the, like the, ins, the insane end of the spectrum is when um, you see like, um, there's the Oatly, that oat milk company, like they do insane ads where they're like, what's the most, like, what would be dumber than a, a oat milk company? creating a New York or like a, a Times Square billboard ad, two of them. And like, there's a second ad, like there's a second billboard right next to this. Like, like those are the ones where people will be like, did you see this? And I'm like, yeah, they also had a probably million dollar budget for that. Like it's a little of bit course. different. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I always, I always end with having the author who has come on, give a recommendation of any kind. It can be a book. It can be a TV show. I've had people recommend going for a walk. What is something, um, what is something you want to recommend that, you know, more people should know about or should do? Well, I'll always recommend going for a walk because, (laughs) um, yeah, that's, that's just a great way to clear your head and kind of, kind of loosen the cobwebs that are, you know, between your ears. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'll give a book recommendation. Um, there's a great book by an author named Stephen Pressfield called the war of art. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not the art of war. That's the more popular book, but it's just flipped. So it's mm-hmm. the war of art. 
And um, basically, Stephen Pressfield was, he is an author um, who didn't really start writing consistently until he was, I think, in his early 30s. Um, he wrote a bunch of screenplays. Nothing ever got picked up. Mm-hmm. And I think the first time he got something published, I think he was in his early 50s. Mm-hmm. And um, his book is just like a really nice, it's almost like a handbook for any creative, mm-hmm. you know, whether you're a designer, whether you're a copywriter. Um, but then he does a great job of like streamlining it. So, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you'll get something out of it. Or mm-hmm. if you want to start your own nonprofit, you get something out of it. And it's really just like a lean, it's a really lean book. And it's kind of a nice kick in the butt. Mm-hmm. I, I, I read it about once every year, year and a half. Um, it's a really short read, only about 120 pages. The chapters are really, really short. But The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, if you're feeling a little a little lost creatively, I dec- definitely recommend giving that a read. Awesome. I'm definitely going to check that out. And all my listeners should also check out You're Not That Funny by Josh. It's fantastic. And you'll get a little bit of an insight into, you know, our world here in Cleveland that we we love so much. Josh, thank you so much for joining me today. No, super appreciate it, man. Go Browns. Passions and Prologues is proud to be an evergreen podcast and was created by Adam Sokol. It was produced by Adam Sokol and Sean Rule Hoffman. And if you are interested in this podcast and any other evergreen podcast, you can go to evergreenpodcast.com to discover all the different stories we have to tell. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I offer you some feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.